Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we are doing part two. Let's talk about rights. And also, shockingly, we're going to talk about different narratives, right? Not all women are created equal in reproduction. Do you think you and I ever talk about different narratives, Misasha? I don't know. It's really hard to come up with an example. So, <laughs> In our first episode from last week, and go back and listen if you haven't done so already, we did first part on presidential powers. And the second part, we really kicked off the history of women's rights. But we dove into the history in this country, both from 100 years ago and from last week. So as you can tell from that episode, the progress is not linear about attaining and maintaining women's rights. But do all women have these rights in the same way? And like I said, let's challenge the narrative that we've been hearing so far. Because when we talk about reproductive rights in the United States, here's what most of us think about. We focus on efforts to get and defend the legal right to abortion. And who are these rights or efforts led by? Predominantly white women. Right. So that brings us to why what we're going to talk about is so important, because what little information is provided about women of color with regard to reproductive rights tends to center on the abuses they have suffered and represents only a partial history. Most of the reproductive health organizing done by women of color in the United States, so that means women of color who are working just like white women to fight for their reproductive rights, most of that work has been undocumented, unanalyzed, and unacknowledged. So there was a great book that came out in 2004 called Undivided Rights, Women of Color Organized for Reproductive Justice, which really highlights the role of women of color in advocating for their own interests, largely because they face very different and specific issues regarding reproductive rights that are not faced by white women out there. And so we're going to spend a lot of time unpacking what they talk about in this book today. And just to interject for a second, if you are a man listening to this episode, continue. And here's why. I just saw this insanely good tweet that basically said... If a woman has sex with a hundred men, she can carry one pregnancy to term in that year, right? Like if she, even if she has sex with a hundred men, she can carry one pregnancy. If a man has sex with a hundred women, he could in theory have a hundred women pregnant in a year. And so this is a question of our next generation, of the lives of children that we collectively, and we need men and women to do this. Can make. And so what does this say for our next generation and about the human beings that we are and that we can potentially miraculously create with the union of our bodies? So I just want everyone to pay attention, not just women here. I love that. Yep, that's so true. So in this book, women of color in the United States negotiate their reproductive lives in a system that combines various interlocking forms of oppression. So as activist scholar and co-author of this book, Loretta Ross puts it, our ability to control what happens to our bodies is constantly challenged by poverty, racism, environmental degradation, sexism, homophobia, and injustice in the United States. So just a couple of things, really. The groups in this book created their own definitions of reproductive rights, definitions that are grounded in the experiences of their different communities and that link these oppressions. It is because of these intersections that women of color advance a definition of reproductive rights that goes beyond abortion. Okay, so to recap, white women tend to focus on abortion. Women of color tend to look at it more broadly. I mean, I never would have thought of that. Yeah, and that's such an important distinction, and it goes to the heart of what we're really going to talk about. Why are sometimes the interests of white women and women of color not aligned in something where we should all be fighting for the rights of women? So 
Early in the abortion rights struggle, before these organizations were created, women of color resisted the coercion that masqueraded as choice. And remember choice, or rather not remember, but as you're aware, choice is such a big role in when we talk about reproductive rights in this country. In a 1973 editorial that was supportive of the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision legalizing abortion, and that came out right at this time, if you remember from our prior episode where we talk about the history of reproductive rights, the National Council of Negro Women sounded this important cautionary note. The keywords are, quote, if she chooses. Bitter experiences taught the Black woman that the administration of justice in this country is not colorblind. Black women on welfare have been forced to accept sterilization in exchange for a continuation of relief benefits, and others have been sterilized without their knowledge or consent. A young pregnant woman recently arrested for civil rights activities in North Carolina was convicted and told that her punishment would be to have a forced abortion. We must be ever vigilant that what appears on the surface to be a step forward does not, in fact, become yet another method of enslavement. I mean, let's not let that slide without emphasis. Sterilization in exchange for benefits, which and we'll get into sterilization in just a little bit in this episode. But another one, a forced abortion. I mean, I'm having an are you bleeping serious kind of moment right now hearing that blurb from the book. Yeah. 25 years later, in her introduction to Policing the National Body, co-author J.L. Silliman expands their critique. The mainstream movement, largely dominated by white women, is framed around choice. The choice to determine whether or not to have children, the choice to terminate a pregnancy, and the ability to make informed choices about contraceptive and reproductive technologies. This conception of choice is rooted in the neoliberal tradition that locates individual rights at its core and treats the individual's control over her body as central to liberty and freedom. This emphasis on individual choice, however, hides the social context in which individuals make choices and discounts the ways in which the state regulates populations, disciplines individual bodies, and exercises control over sexuality, gender, and reproduction. So in other words, choice implies a marketplace of options in which a woman's right to determine what happens to their body or her body is legally protected. But this ignores the fact that for women of color, economic and institutional constraints often restrict their choices. And there it is. Boom, right? This is the critical point. Yes. For example, a woman who decides to have an abortion out of economic necessity does not experience her decision as a choice. Which is, I mean, it's an interesting point. Even now, I mean, I think about my family, right? Take a moment and think about your situation. But we could, by all sort of absolute standards, technically afford financially to have another child. It would shift money away from other priorities. So we would prefer not to have another child. That is my choice. But if we were in a financial position where we were dramatically struggling, literally would not be able to afford to feed another mouth. So me, my partner, my children would go hungry, malnourished. I mean, that's not a choice. That is an awful reality of what I would have to do in order to survive. Right. Right. I mean, imagine that scenario. I think that's interesting that the verbiage reflects something that I never had really considered. It isn't a choice. It sucks if you are in that position. Right. And activists 
who are women of color focus on this. For example, Native American activist Justine Smith writes, in the Native context, where women often find the only contraceptives available to them could be dangerous, where they live in communities in which unemployment rates can run as high as 80%, and where their life expectancy can be as low as 47 years, reproductive choice defined so narrowly is a meaningless concept. Right. It's a necessity. It's in order to survive, you cannot have that child. And the options are what? To not have sex? Right. Let's go back to, I mean, I think it is a human thing. Right. Where if you are able to be in a partnership, it is a natural mammalian thing that human beings do. And that is awful to potentially put people in a situation where if that necessity is taken to do that, to survive is taken away, what does that do for the lives of those who are living, who are part of that family? Yep. And this goes to what's the definition of reproductive rights? And a broader cultural understanding of reproductive rights encompasses the race, class, gender, and immigration experiences of each group, linking reproductive rights and access to health care. For example, all the groups argue that culturally competent providers are crucial to achieving access to reproductive health services. And we've talked about this in other forms of health care, both mental and physical health, you know, before on this podcast, Sarah. But this is a real focus on reproductive rights right now. So in addition to healthcare providers knowing the language of the people they serve, cultural competency requires an understanding of and respect for the cultures, traditions, and practices of a community because we are so diverse here. Stereotypes and a lack of accurate knowledge about communities are barriers to interpreting women's needs. There are also obstacles which prevent women who need information and care from getting it. And I really wanted to give some examples here because 100% agreed. We have talked about this. But when you're talking about women, for example, there was a story that I read that an elderly Irish woman was hospitalized and then scheduled for surgery. And the woman complained of pain to her family but said nothing to her doctor. Apparently, hiding pain is a general characteristic of Irish women, but unaware of this cultural tendency, the doctor denied the family's request to move up the surgery date and her condition worsened and she died during surgery. And if the doctor had been aware of that tendency, he may have lent a little bit more weight to what the family was saying. You think about other cultures that we have in this country. A Chinese patient may be showing respect to a physician by avoiding eye contact. But in America, a lack of eye contact might be rude might be an indicator of depression, lack of confidence, right? And the eye contact thing is huge also in Muslim and Navajo cultures. So that's another misunderstanding that might happen if providers are not well-versed in different cultural traditions. I mean, I think for men listening, and this is a little bit funny, but like when you're in your most vulnerable state, and my husband has told me about that, you know, Doctors grab your balls, turn your head, cough, cough, like that moment. You have a doctor in your most private of parts. And imagine that even more intimately because for women, you're talking about something that's inside you, right? Not just external, but literally inside your body. You want someone who sees you for who you are as a human being with all of your history and culture and values, not someone who ticks a box and moves on when this is something that is so central and so private to who you are. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is in a general health context, it's scary, but it can be debilitating in a context which involves something that's so personal, so intimate as reproductive rights. Yeah, just to segue just for a moment, I think one of the things that I find frustrating about American culture, and I think I referenced this, I don't remember if I said this in our New Year's episode about vision, but like, 
women in this culture with Hollywood and this glorification of youth, you know, are really valued for their ability, like during those prime reproductive years, like the sexy full lips and your ability to procreate and all this sort of stuff. And you're revered for being in this period of fertility. That is really, you think about the struggle of women who are so crushed when they are having a hard time conceiving and the process that people have to go to. Like, it is a really important pillar for women in this country, fairly or unfairly. And so, and identifying who you are and what value you have in society. I mean, I've said like, you know, I don't want my value to decline when my fertility years go away. I want to be this shriveled up, wise, ancient, (laughs) old lady in the community. But, you know, it's an identity thing too, when you're talking about reproductive rights. It's really important. I agree. And that transcends all women, right? That is true for all women. I think what's so tricky is that women of color are used to having some of these reproductive decisions taken away from them, either through force or through coercion. For example, in 1970, President Nixon supported establishing federal family planning services by appealing to white people's fears about population explosions that would make governance of the world in general and inner cities in particular difficult. So this is, to put this in context, this is right around the Roe v. Wade decision time period. This is right after interracial marriage was legalized in this country. This is, you know, the start of, this is right after the civil rights you know, era. And so you're starting to see a change in population in cities and you're starting to see people inner cities change demographic wise and sort of that white flight, people starting to move out of the cities. So Nixon's policy advisors assembled statistics that pointed to a bulge in the number of black Americans between the ages of five and nine, claiming that this group was 25 percent larger than 10 years before. Population alarmists warned that this group of youngsters soon entering their teens was, quote, an age group with problems that can create social turbulence. So recognizing the relationship between numbers of people and political power, white politicians favored, quote, helping racial minorities limit their fertility. Determined to lower population growth in African-American and Latino communities, many pro-segregation Southern politicians both Republicans and Democrats, so this was a nonpartisan effort, who had formerly opposed family planning, suddenly favored it as a way of regulating the reproduction of these groups. So against it when it came to potentially their families, but cool when it came to people of color. Opposition to welfare and commitment to reduce welfare roles by supplying free birth control services to poor women were joined in a race and class direct social policy. And in one of the more overt expressions of this position, Leander Perez, a Louisiana judge, revealed in 1965 the link between coercive birth control and racism. And he used a much more hateful word in this, which I'm not going to repeat. But he said, the best way to hate a black man is to hate him before he is born. So policies definitely linked to race there. Right. So, you know, as you do, women of color organized here to protect their what their rights, because this is directly impacting them, their families, their communities. And this is directly impacting their own reproductive rights and health as well. But according to at least some white people, this wasn't supposed to be a fight that women of color should have been in. Women of color were expected to focus more on civil rights as reproductive rights were seen to be a, quote, white problem. But in reality, as we just discussed, they go hand in hand. In 1989, 
act, so this is many years past 1970, activist and scholar Dorothy Roberts encountered the same issues when she spoke about threats to abortion rights at a neighborhood meeting, and a man in the audience took her to task. He said that reproductive rights was, quote, a white woman's issue and advised me to stick to traditional civil rights concerns, such as affirmative action, voting rights, and criminal justice. So, however, women of color, despite people like that guy in the audience, have refused to divide civil rights from reproductive rights. Rather, they have transformed the fight for both by creating an ever-expanding comprehensive reproductive justice agenda. Their agenda includes fighting against two of the methods frequently employed by the racially motivated family planning apparatus that have undermined women of color's right to have children, coercive sterilization and invasive long-term birth control technologies. So let's unpack, you know, what those two components are. So in the 20th century, Native American, Mexican-American, African-American, and Puerto Rican women and other women of color were denied the right to have children through systematic and widespread sterilization abuses practiced by the U.S. government and by private doctors who were more often than not subsidized by the U.S. government. Women of color responded by taking up the fight against sterilization abuse. Native women, African-American, and Latina groups documented and publicized sterilization abuses in their communities in the 1960s and 70s, showing that women had been sterilized without their knowledge or consent. They demonstrated that women who spoke only Spanish were asked to sign consent forms in English and sometimes pressured to do so during labor and childbirth, which, Sarah, as you and I have been through. I'm really (laughs) with it then. (laughs) You're going to sign anything. You're going to do anything in that scenario because you have no idea what is happening to you at that moment. Native women were given hysterectomies by Indian Health Service without their permission. So just sit, sit, sit. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, even just those two examples, even if that happened to one person, but if that was happening more widely, I mean, it seriously sucks, for lack of a more technical term. That's ridiculous. And it is so targeted. And it's something that white women did not have to do that. Sorry, sorry, I'm stepping on you. You go. No. Well, you know, this might be because in our pre, you know, prepping for this episode, we had talked about statistics, and this might be a really good place to talk about those statistics because we just talked about Native women, right? Yeah. I mean, so can I talk about that? Yeah, do it. The U.S. government recently admitted to forcing thousands of Native American Indian women to be sterilized. The procedures even included 36 women who were under 21 years old, despite laws prohibiting anyone 21 years and younger from receiving the procedure. There was a doctor, Dr. Pinkerton Uri, found that 25 percent of Native American Indian women had been sterilized without their consent. 25%. They also found that the Indian Health Service had singled out full-blooded Indian women for sterilization procedures. So in total, it's estimated that as many as 25 to 50% of Native American women were sterilized between 1970 and 1976. I mean, that number is just so huge that it's hard for me to wrap my brain around that. Yes. And in the South, there was a thing called Mississippi appendectomies. And that was a term for unnecessary hysterectomies that were given to black women at teaching hospitals as examples for medical students. Unbelievable. And one statistic that I found that I realized we didn't add in our outline is that when the U.S. was sort of moving into Puerto Rico and making Puerto Rico, you know, a territory, there was some statistic that I saw that showed that they sterilized up to a third of Puerto Rican women. And I know, right? And I had never heard about that before. That's a good thing Puerto Rico doesn't have heartache to deal with right now, you know, with earthquakes, you know, recovering, you know, but according to our government, nothing's happening there. So they're fine. Yeah. Side note, sorry. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's a good one. So this is what was happening to women of color, but the experience of women of color with regard to these practices did not reflect the white female experience. So these groups were not joined together in pushing for positive change for all women. For example, so going back to the 1970s, and we're kind of stuck in that period right now, when the major pro-choice and feminist organizations did not join women of color in demanding sterilization guidelines, it was because their experiences with sterilization were radically different. While women of color were targets for coercive sterilization, white middle-class women had trouble persuading doctors to perform voluntary sterilizations and often had to obtain permission from medical committees to do so. Pro-choice organizations perceived guidelines regulating sterilization as infringing on women's choices, so back to that word choice, not enhancing them. While the National Organization for Women, known as NOW, did not take a position on the issue, the National Abortion and Reproductive Rights Action Leave, or NARAL, and other groups that had traditionally supported abortion rights, such as Planned Parenthood, Zero Population Growth, and the Association for Voluntary Surgical Contraception opposed the sterilization regulations on the grounds that they deprived women of, quote, freedom of choice. In general, mainstream white feminists believed the guidelines were unnecessary and paternalistic and interfered with the doctor-patient relationship. So digesting that for a moment, the experience of white women and women of color was different. Mm-hmm. I would venture a guess that it continues to be different. And unless we see that, unless white women see that, unless activists see that and change that, we are not bonded together as women first. And there's not a chance in freaking hell we're going to make a change in this society because it still continues to be dominated by white men. Yeah, that's so true. Because what is the, I think, and it's so important to focus on that word choice, because there is an inherent assumption and predominantly when you have white privilege that you have this choice, right? And this choice is being taken away from you in some way by trying to regulate certain things. But what if you never had this choice to begin with? I think the baseline is very different for different groups. And that is something that we absolutely have to acknowledge and work to find that same baseline and what is going to get everyone and in reproductive rights, all women, what are those unifying goals that we have? So going back to what you just said that, you know, you venture that this is still going on, it is still going on because, you know, past the 70s into the 90s, for example, and moving forward, we've seen a similar divergence in views regarding hormonal contraception. So population groups and mainstream pro-choice organizations enthusiastically greeted the development of Norplant and Depo-Provera as an expansion of reproductive choice for women. Depo-Provera injections were promoted in their joint campaigns as, quote, highly effective, long-acting, and offering privacy to the user since the woman has no need to keep contraceptive supplies at home. Their endorsement came despite the risk that Depo-Provera causes menstrual cycle irregularities, principally the absence of periods, and increases the risk of endometrial and breast cancer. And do you know, until you actually wrote this out, I always thought it was Deprovera. I didn't know it was Depo-Provera. I had always heard it differently. Yeah, there's another syllable. That's so funny. Yep. So we're all learning. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I'm curious. I mean, I want to talk about this a little bit. Depro-Provera causes menstrual cycle, like the absence of periods. So do some IUDs that women are using now. And so there's a part of me that's like, well, really, how bad can it be? But we'll get to that. Well, and I think this is still 
in the 90s, right? And now we're looking at this from a different medical period, right? Okay, that's true. So in contrast, along with progressive women's health groups around the world, women of color have been more skeptical of provider-controlled hormonal methods of contraceptions whose side effects and risks were unclear, probably because they were being sterilized without their choice by you know, provider-controlled methods as a theory. For example, women of color and other progressive groups around the world have criticized Norplant, which were our subdermal in- implants, and Depo-Provera, which we just talked about, are the injectables, which are the were, at least, the two methods most aggressively marketed to young African-American, Latina, and Native women. In 1991, there were a whole bunch of international groups that issued warnings of the potential for Norplant abuses. Their concerns were validated merely two days after the contraceptive implant was approved by the United States Food and Drug Administration when the Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper published an editorial advocating its use, quote, as a tool in the fight against black poverty. And you and I had this conversation because I was curious about this. I mean, on one hand, if you want to assume the best in people, couldn't this be seen through the lens of helping truly like and be well-intentioned for women in poverty? Because if women can't afford babies, then maybe this is a good method for them to be able to continue having sex and not having to make a post-contraceptive choice of abortion. Right. You know, and I see your point. I think it would be different if the editorial was advocating its use, quote, as a tool in the fight against poverty. But they said, as a tool in the fight against Black poverty. And I think that's where the issue is, because they are singling out a specific race. They're not talking about it as a tool for poverty overall. And I think that's where it's racist. And so although the newspaper later apologized for its racist editorial, judges and state legislators continued to advocate for the use of Norplant among disadvantaged women. And by disadvantage, that largely meant disadvantaged women of color. Interesting. So, I mean, keep in mind, in fighting for their own rights, women of color are also constantly fighting against racist stereotypes that sort of form a barrier against understanding and as connection as humans. Women of color are subject to racist and sexist stereotypes, which send messages that, I mean, you shouldn't be in charge of your own reproductive and sexual destinies then, right? When women of color internalize these stereotypes, it really is damaging psychologically, and it's a barrier to activism. So to switch this, and it's not a great example, but if you're a white woman listening to this, right, imagine you're constantly stereotyped. Imagine like the blonde white women. Oh, you're so ditzy. You're stupid. Imagine you're constantly beaten down by people for being stupid if you make one comment that fits into that stereotype. Or even if you don't make a comment and you're just carrying yourself along like you do. And for no reason, people say stuff to you because you present as a blonde and you're constantly the butt of dumb blonde jokes. And you're denied getting extra tutoring when you need it for a subject because they say you can't do it anyway. And you're excluded from opportunities for scholarship because you're blonde. And then imagine you're supposed to advocate for women being allowed to go to college because of feminism. I mean, you might be kind of like at that point, after being told you're not good enough and you're stupid for long enough, you might really be questioning your worth you'd be exhausted, no? And then would you really go on and advocate, go the opposite way and fight for women's rights for education and becoming smarter? I don't know. Maybe not the best example, but do you get the point I'm trying to get at? 
Yeah. Well, and I think like in that scenario, you're excluded. You're not getting those scholarship opportunities, but you're supposed to be advocating for something you can't even get to do on behalf of all women. Right. And while you're just living your daily life, trying to figure out where the next insult is coming from, where the next injury is coming from, it is exhausting. And I think it is a divide and you start to look at people differently. You can't find that unity in the group that you want. Mm -hmm. Which is why so often we talk about the concept of our show, Dear White Women, is to reach out to more people who fit in that grouping, who can and are interested in being allies and voices, because people who've been beaten down for so long are still doing the work and they are tougher and tougher for doing it. But it's exhausting and they shouldn't have to be the ones who are fighting for their own rights all the time. Just the same way as feminists, we need men to stand up for us. Black women need white women. You know, people of color need all of us to stand up together and see all of our stories in order to make a change. Sorry, I got really fired up there for a second. but <laughs> I love it. Get fired up. <laughs> groups, so to carry on. I mean, when you're making groups based on racial and gender identities, they help participants overcome important barriers to activism by really, you know, combating their internalized oppression. And so Tony Bond, who's founder and executive director of African-American Women Evolving, wrote about the toll of internalized oppression to the point we were just talking about. Many of us have so internalized racial oppression, she writes, that it has transformed into a self-hatred and seeps into and impedes even our ability to work together collectively, resulting in organizational upheaval and our further disenfranchisement. So emotionally bruised are women of color from racist oppression and our internalization of that oppression that we have trouble letting our guards down to share personal stories about our experiences around health or any other issue. So again, I mean, I've done some panel discussions in town lately where people of color or people who are perceived as minorities have shared their experiences. And I am so grateful every time they're willing to do it because when you talk to someone about their real experiences, you I mean, they are the experts in their lives and they know what has happened to them. And for them to be so bold and brave to open themselves up and share these experiences is super powerful and we need to listen. So I'm really grateful when people are willing to because it is exhausting. And I can see her point that it can be difficult to let your guard down to share personal stories. To that point, Evelyn Shen, director of Asians and Pacific Islanders for Reproductive Health, she echoes Bond's point when she talks about the need to confront stereotypes just to make activism possible. She says, quote, Asian women are supposed to be docile and obedient. This model is not compatible with fighting for women's rights. For women of color, challenging these myths and stereotypes is part of the process of reclaiming their humanity and redefining their own identities. And so it's really women from all four racial and ethnic groups have faced and challenged racial stereotyping. I mean, can we talk about the African-American stereotypes here for a second? Because we had read this and I was like, wait, I actually knew the stereotypes, but I didn't know what they were called. And you helped dig this out for me in our prep here. Right. So there were two that came up when we were talking about this book and harmful stereotypes of black women. And they are the mammy stereotype and the sapphire stereotypes. And they're diametrically opposite. So the mammy one is the stereotype of the black woman as the caregiver, the maternal 
figure for the white children, you know, that's directly from slavery, right? She's the black housemaid who's, you know, taking care of the white woman's children. So she's maternal, she's loving, she's non-threatening in any way. So that's the mammy stereotype. The flip side of that is Sapphire, which was a caricature that came out you started in the 1800s, but was really given the name in the 1950s as part of a popular TV show, Amos and Andy. But this is the stereotype of the uh, sassy, emasculating, domineering, angry black woman that has evolved over time. And so both of these, while they're polar opposites, they really work against black women because black women are put into one category or the other or both in some confusing way, and have to fight those stereotypes where they're trying to fight for their own rights. That's interesting, because one of our panels that I've hosted, a woman said that, you know, we said, what are some of the things that people say to you that trigger you? And she, a black woman said, when people call me angry, that angry black woman stereotype, instantly who I am goes out the window, and I become a caricature of myself. And then they don't see why they don't listen, they don't really feel empathy for what I am trying to express. I just become that stereotype. And that is really hard to get over. And I thought, I mean, so having heard that, I get it. That's hard. Thanks for sharing that. So you think about Asian women, my mom is an Asian woman, right? Asian women are portrayed in contradictory ways. You have concubines, you have prostitutes, you have model minorities, the perfect A plus student who plays the violin and is great at math. And these people get an unfair advantage from affirmative action. So there's a lot of different stereotypes for Asian women. Racist de descriptions represent the Native American women in different ways, too. I mean, we got to talk to Crystal Echohawk, and it was fascinating speaking with her about it. But you have stereotypes as a willing squaw, an alcoholic, a, quote, brown lump of drudge. And people have said about Natives, they're said to wallow in welfare, food stamps, free housing and medical care, affirmative action, and gargantuan federal cash payments. I mean... How do you, as you present as a Native woman, fight against those stereotypes? Latinas are stereotyped as oversexed hot tamales or like illegal immigrants who want to have babies in the United States so they can obtain citizenship and welfare benefits. Some social scientists describe Latinas as ideally submissive, unworldly, and chaste, or at the command of the husband who keeps her as he would a coveted thing, free from the context of the world, subject to his passions, ignorant of life. Imagine if any of those were the ways that you were assumed to be when you showed up talking to someone other than your race. These myths and stereotypes are part of the larger system of oppression and play a hugely important part in perpetuating it. Characterizing women of color as sexually promiscuous and too irresponsible to make their own reproductive decisions and be good mothers serves as the rationale for enacting and legitimizing discriminatory policies, programs, and laws. I think that's so important. That is really, really important to understand. Because I remember some of these things were about to start. In the 1950s, the images of the lazy, quote, welfare queen was rejuvenated during the 1970s and 80s to fuel cutbacks in public assistance. We still have that conversation today when you're talking about policies right now, the food stamps that were being cut, the school lunch program that we just did an episode on. President Reagan referred to a woman on welfare as a, quote, pig at the trough. What the actual what? <laughs> I know. You have images of hyper-fertile Mexican women crossing the border illegally to bear their children on U.S. soil so their children can secure social benefits, right? That's a conversation that helped pass restrictive legislation like Proposition 187 in California, which denied undocumented immigrants educational and 
health benefits. Still bitter about that one. Yep. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And do we remember the cages going on right now on our border? Let's not forget that, right? So continuing the assault against Latinos, Harvard professor Samuel Huntington's new book, Who Are We? Challenges to America's National Identity, suggests that Hispanic immigrants are undermining the, quote, greatness of the United States by diluting our national identity as an Anglo-Protestant country. And it's a diatribe offered by someone who's been a lifelong Democrat. I think that's amazing. And I have so many emotions about that. And just to clarify, I think that book was new back when the book that we're talking about came out. But I do think that surprisingly and not surprisingly, not much has changed in those 15 years, really. But I think it's important to realize this is not in some of our conversations about the history of the political parties, Republican versus Democrat. And then we saw the Tea Party. And then we see, you know, the latest progressive, like crazy liberal democratic stuff. And then socialism. I mean, you have all of these things. We're not talking about parties. We're talking about being a human being, about having our brains turned on and critically thinking through the issues, understanding the history of what has brought us to where we are today, and making our choices on the ballot accordingly, regardless of our party. So true. This is about humans first, and people, and that the partisanship can often take our focus away from what are the keys of the true issues. So how does this divide close? And I think that this next part is really important to understand and sit with for a second. Despite their efforts, activists in predominantly white organizations have asked, you know, over time and now, where are the women of color in the struggle for abortion rights? And this very question excludes women of color by erasing their historical involvement in the birth control and pro-choice movements. It assumes that because women of color are not in white organizations, they are not involved in the struggle. Further, this question indicates just how far we are from having a multiracial, multi-issue, cross-class movement for reproductive freedom. And finally, this it really raises larger questions about identity politics and creating an inclusive movement. And I'm really glad we get to talk more about this at the Women's March. I'm so glad that they invited us to talk because this is what we're going to talk about. Yeah. Other perspectives and other narratives. Yeah. So, you know, the authors of this book, as do we, believe that there are two false assumptions that underlie this thinking, that identity politics were invented and are only practiced by non-white minority groups, and that race or ethnic-based organizing creates unnecessary divisions among groups. To the contrary, really, all social movements, whether organized for the rights of people of color or gay people or workers or whomever, use identity politics in the sense that they are working on behalf of their constituencies who share an identity. So, for example, cisgender white people have not recognized themselves as an identity group, generally, because they assumed their identity to be the universal norm, right? Please say that, because this is the critical part. Right. What you just said is everybody else basically has an identity. And so they need as the minority to band together to share an identity and share a cause. But say what you just said again. Right. So cisgender white people, that means heterosexual white people have not recognized themselves as an identity group because they assumed their identity to be the universal norm. So when you extrapolate that out a little bit, Consequently, many white women organizing for reproductive rights assume that their agenda includes all women because that white women experience they're assuming is the norm. But does it really include all women? 
The book that we've been basing a lot of this conversation on rejects these assumptions, instead arguing that the reproductive rights organizing by women of color provides an opportunity to explore the benefits and limits of identity politics as an organizing strategy for women of color, as well as to analyze its impact on the overall movement. I mean, the necessity for such organizing by women of color raises basic questions about inclusion. Who is being included in what? What are the terms of inclusion? What are the political goals of an inclusive movement? I mean, the book suggests that being included in the mainstream was not the primary goal of women of color who created reproductive rights organizations. And a quote is, we think the responsibility for reforming and transforming the mainstream movement lies with the predominantly white leaders of that movement who must recognize that exclusivity is the only path to successfully achieving reproductive rights and justice for all women. Perhaps, and this is from activist and abortion provider Brenda Joyner, she says, the question is not really where are the women of color in the abortion rights and reproductive rights movement, but rather where's the primarily white middle-class movement in our struggles for freedom? As mainstream organizations grapple with these issues, they should really ask how they can be allies as women of color take the lead in shaping a broader movement, which encompasses all of their issues. Right. And I think that it's important to recognize that the activists who were interviewed in this book and, you know, even 15 years after this book came out, activists now have a positive definition of inclusion. To them, inclusion means creating an agenda and ultimately a movement that reflects the broad set of needs and concerns which all women face. Many women of color reproductive rights activists increasingly find the human rights framework successfully used by anti-racist and anti-fascist movements worldwide to be one of the best ways of articulating and advancing their rights. So again, this links back to what are we first? We're humans. Linking civil, political, economic, sexual, and social rights, it bridges the gap between having legal rights and lacking the economic resources to access those rights. Those women of color who embrace the existing global human rights framework do so in order to locate reproductive freedom within a broad movement for human rights. So in 2000, the Institute for Women and Ethnic Studies in New Orleans put forth a Reproductive Health Bill of Rights which in part reads, all people are born free and equal with dignity and rights as set forth in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And we've talked a little bit about this Universal Declaration as when it comes to human rights violations, such as some might argue solitary confinement and how it's been defined, especially with regards to kids. And we've talked about this in prior episodes. Historically, women of color across nations, cultures, and different religious and ethnic groups have been subject to racist exploitation, discrimination, and abuse. Manipulative, coercive, and punitive health policies and practices deprive women of color of their fundamental human rights and dignity. So, like other U.S.-based organizations serving women of color, the Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Health Collective uses this global human rights framework in its activism, recognizing that the United States lacks a sufficient legal framework to guarantee women of color safe and reliable access to health care. In order to ensure appropriate treatment and access to health care and to address the issues of class, race, and gender that affect women of color, a comprehensive human rights-based approach to organizing that accounts for difference is necessary. So although this is the global direction and it has been the global direction in which reproductive rights activism is moving, and we've seen that, you know, as we hear about more protests throughout the world and more discussions around the world, the mainstream movement in the United States, except for its more progressive wings, has really yet to adopt it. 
So its emphasis on individualism and civil and political rights neglects the economic, social, sexual, and cultural rights that address sort of the collective needs here. So you've got people who are unfamiliar in the United States with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or international treaties that protect women's reproductive rights. And so this failure to adopt this human rights framework that is really a global human rights framework sort of helps the conservative movement that opposes the U.S. government signing international treaties, such as the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, which was a big deal when this book was being written. And I think we've seen recently the U.S. pulling back from a lot of international treaties and really taking a separate position, which is particularly troubling when you're thinking about structuring fights for justice and reproductive rights, as an example, on a human rights international framework. Because removing the U.S. from international treaties, international agreements, or anything along those lines takes the U.S. away from being accountable to international norms and standards. So going back to what we've been touching on throughout this episode, what if we really took the position that women's rights are human rights first and foremost? So what if we really thought about it not as white women's rights, as women of color's rights, as abortion rights, but as reproductive rights and women's rights are human rights first? If we look at it like that and really look at it like that, then maybe we can bridge the differences that experience often leaves us blind regarding, and we can truly fight for all women rather than those who look like us or who have similar experiences to our own. Something to think about for sure. If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. And if you want any more information, go to our website at dearwhitewomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer. 